I sort of felt stifled being in the Catskills. It was great money. It was great money. It was great audiences. But I had to keep to a certain style. And the more politically aware I became, the harder it was for me not to bring up more provocative topics in my humor. Hello and welcome to the No Name NYC podcast. Thanks for being here. My name is Eric Vedder. Thanks for joining us. No Name is New York City's longest running comedy variety show. And now we got a podcast. What we want to do here is give you a chance to meet some of the people who passed through our doors in 28 years and uh, give you a chance to meet them. Our focus is in exploring the world of artists living in New York City. Uh, the voice you heard up front with Rhonda Handsome. Uh, I was really excited to interview Rhonda. Rhonda has one of the most extraordinary and varied careers of anyone I've ever personally known. She's done all sorts of stuff, gone all over the place uh, as a stand-up. She's also a very celebrated theater director and storyteller and a writer, and now she's doing some singing and... uh, her career is an endless series of things that you're like, what? What you did that? Yes, she did, and you get to hear her talk about it in just a little bit. Uh, if you're listening to this on the day it is scheduled for release, then it is August 1st. Of course, with the way things are nowadays, you could be listening to this 10 years from now. Uh, you could be listening to it a few days after its release. Uh, who knows? But. As you're listening to me now, I'm actually at a basketball court uptown in Washington Heights, just hanging out with my producer, Gary Hardcastle. And uh, today is July 28th, as we're recording this intro. And July 28th is my mom's birthday. She would have been, I I gotta see about the math, but I think she would have been 95 today, which is pretty stunning. She'd She'd been gone for over a quarter of a century. Uh... So, so happy birthday, Mom. Now, yesterday, as we record this, was July 27th. That's also a special day to me. It is a date recognized by many cartoon geeks as Bugs Bunny's birthday. The thinking is that on that date, in 1940, the cartoon short A Wild Hare was first released, and that is considered by many cartoon historians to be the first authentic Bugs Bunny cartoon. He appeared in some other cartoons before then, but it was kind of like, you know, an embryonic version, but here it got all the elements. There's a chase with Elmer Fudd. I think it's the first time he says, what's up, Doc? So it's an important thing, and Bugs Bunny was a major role model in my life. Bugs was cool. Bugs could get out of any situation. Frequently dressed as a woman, but point being, Bugs never flinched. He was always cool, always got out of any any situation. So, cut to July 27th, 1990. That would have been Bugs Bunny's 50th birthday. On that particular day, one of the networks uh, was having a two-hour special about Bugs Bunny, including several complete shorts of him. And my mom was very kind, and, and she, because I, I couldn't watch it for some reason. I don't know if I wasn't around or what have you. And she agreed to tape it for me. 
video cassette. We had our first ever VHS. One of these top-loading monstrosities, and it was a hand-me-down from poor people, which gives you an idea of where we were on the VHS food chain. But she recorded it for me, and the next day, she gave me the tape and said, here, I, I hope you enjoy it. It was a lot of fun, but I'm really embarrassed. Why are you embarrassed, Bob? So, well, while I was watching it, they showed the first ever Bugs Bunny cartoon. And while I was watching it, I thought to myself, wow, Elmer Fudd looks really young there. And they said, wait, what am I thinking? So that's my mom. And that's uh, (laughs) probably explained a lot about the person I am. So uh, happy belated birthday, Bugs, and happy birthday, Mom. Although you'll all hear this after it was her birthday. So for you people, happy belated birthday, Mom. Well, that's, that's about it. We're going to get to our conversation with Rhonda Handsome in just a minute. But first, a word from our sponsor. Escape to Green Bay. That's right, the historic Astor House bed and breakfast in beautiful Green Bay, Wisconsin. I don't know if you've ever been to a bed and breakfast before, but the breakfast at a lot of these places tends to be like a mini box of cereal or uh, some questionable fruit, things of that nature, a piece of toast maybe with some butter. But not at the historic Astor House bed and breakfast. Your innkeepers, Tom and Linda Stieber, will provide you with a delicious, absolutely world-class breakfast every single morning. They will also make you feel welcome in any one of their five luxury accommodations, all of which have a private bath and some of which have their own jacuzzi. If you want to know what's going on around town, Tom and Linda will let you know about any special events and they'll also make recommendations for you to any of the wonderful restaurants in town. So you can't beat it. Go. Go now. Go, get away to Green Bay. For more information or for reservations, go to www.astorhouse.com. That's A-S-T-O-R-H-O-U-S-E.com. Get away to Green Bay. You know, this is like the fourth one we've done. I've been looking forward to this. I've been really excited about this one. This is your fourth podcast? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. We're trying to do a thing where uh, we would like to record it in a place that has some sort of meaning to our guests. We're in my community room. (laughs) Is this the first time you've ever used a community room for something? Yes, it is. This is the first time I've used my community room in the South Bronx where I live. I am also on the board of my co-op. So I asked the president if we could use this space because you have specifically said you like to get people someplace where it is of significance to them. And this place is significant to me because I'm the secretary of the board and I am new to this area of the South Bronx. And it is a part of my attempt to have some kind of sense of belonging here. So this is absolutely significant. 
And also, it's great just to see you and be with you and be part of your initial foray into podcasts. So thank you for asking me. We had a short list of people that we wanted to reach out to in our initial batch, and and you were very prominent on that list. Thank Uh, you. Thank you. You are a native New Yorker, correct? Native New Yorker. There you go. You know, I got to speak to Carl and make that your theme music next time you do the show. Do you, do you know, did he have a regular thing for you? You could always do, help me, Rhonda, help, help me, Rhonda. You know, you know Carl likes to do that. I, I don't know. You're not aware of him having a, a go-to tune for you, I'm right? not aware of it, oh, but okay. I'll take a go-to tune anytime. <laughs> How many boroughs have you lived in? I was born in Brooklyn, love, love Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn, where I was raised. I have lived in Manhattan, mostly in the downtown area, and now I'm in the South Bronx. I have a weird history of meeting you. Do you remember the first time we met? I think you were auditioning for me. Yes, that is correct. Do you recall what I was auditioning with, what I was asked to read? Well, considering it was in the previous century, no. It might have been something by a woman director. Emmy Gay. Emmy Gay's piece, yes. uh, And I was initially cast but it was a piece in progress, and my part was cut prior to the production. Oh, wow. A few weird things about that. First of all, when I met you, I had introduced to you as Passion. Yes. One name, Passion. That's it. One I'd... name, like Cher, Madonna. Uh, I'm Passion. Indeed, <laughs> indeed. But here's the thing. I knew Rhonda Handsome as a top-notch comic who played all the clubs in the city, I did not know passion, and I went into audition for you having no idea who you were other than you were a director named Passion, and that I had been asked to audition by reading Sojourner Truth's Ain't I a Woman speech. (laughs) And I thought, the fuck have I walked into here? What have I walked into, yes. You know, I mean, it's... It's a great piece of writing and speech. And I don't mean to appear not open-minded. I think I'm very open-minded. But I have to say, among the things I've done in my performing and artistic career, I don't have a lot of Sojourner Truth monologues that I've been asked to do. Hey, Uh, you you need all of this in your toolkit. All of this is in your toolkit. You know, but now I've got it on reserve. So if I get asked... I think I was in like two rehearsals or something like that. I know there were a number of changes along the way. Yes, there were changes. And I did actually see the final presentation of that stage of the play. Yes. Man, what what a room full of uh, really talented people that was. Absolutely. Absolutely. Jane Galvin Lewis and Michelle Carlo and Emmy Gay. Mm -hmm. So here's the thing. Went through that whole experience, came to see the show... Still did not know you were Rhonda Handsome. Yes. I don't know. It was probably at least a year or two later. I'd like, wait a minute. Yes. And so this is part of why I really have so been looking forward to this particular episode. Because I know you got stories. Yes. You've... And I have a website directed by passion.com. Mm. <laughs> and you know what? And before... It... Didn't you at some point direct a production of a play about Richard Pryor? I may have. I don't remember doing (laughs) that. But, you know, I've been around for a while. Uh, (laughs) Eric, I'm actually trying to update my director's website, Mm directedbypassion.com. And also, 
my comedy, uh, RondaHandsome.com. That's like a handsome man without the D. Make up your own jokes, folks. I've been trying to update those things because I am so grateful, first, to be alive, and second, to be so involved in creative expression that is uh, satisfying to me. I want to keep people abreast of what I've been doing. I actually just directed a piece for the Berkeley College of Music. It was thrilling. This was at their campus here in Midtown, and this was their first year of showcasing students' work. Whoever it was who recommended me to direct at the Berkeley College of Music, thank you, and please repeat, please <laughs> repeat. It was a great experience for me. The name of the play was Stevie and the Infinite Scroll, a really wonderful piece about a, a musician who gets sucked in by the fame of social media. I have to tell you, to be modest, my piece was one of the three best pieces presented at that session. <laughs> what, do you, uh, what do you need to do to be the best? Do we need to bump off a couple of people? No, no, I'm happy being here. You in, know we do it. I, I, well, that's another, no name family. just another reason why I love you. Just <laughs> another reason why I love you. But I like being in the top three. I also like being paid for my work. And also Goodman and Bean were just wonderful, just wonderful. The whole thing was a wonderful experience for me. Well, you know, I want to go back a little bit now. Uh, you were born in Brooklyn, right? Bed-Stuy, yes. And were you raised there? Bed-Stuy, do or die, yeah, mostly die. I was born and raised in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn, yes. My folks were actually from the South, from Alabama and Virginia. My mother came here as a young woman. She settled in Brooklyn and raised me, sent me to a Catholic school. You may be familiar with St. Virgin in the Bushes. That's where I, I went to elementary school. Uh, yeah, they, they used to have a pretty good ball team, as I recall. Yeah, oh yeah, <laughs> yes. And then I went on to an all-girls Catholic high school on Eastern Parkway called uh, Bishop McDonald. Uh, Memorial High School, which is now a school for the deaf uh, that's very close to the library, Grand Army Plaza Library, the Botanic Gardens, mm -hmm. and Prospect yeah, yeah, Park, I know all of that. About. So I'm a Brooklyn gal, but I'm I'm here now. I'm here now <laughs> in the South Bronx, of formerly known as Fort Apache, the Bronx. I, this is me. This is me. I don't so, want to say I live in a food desert. I really, I don't want to say I live in a food desert, but the neighborhood uh, delicacy is cactus. Uh, I swear to God, it is. It's cactus. And and you you uh, lived in Brooklyn until around what age? Well, I I really lived in Brooklyn for quite some time until I got married and uh, moved to uh, Manhattan where I lived in Spanish Harlem with my then husband and uh, and then we eventually moved to Tribeca. Uh, and we and and raised our family, raised our son, our wonderful son in in Tribeca, and he still lives there. And then when I got divorced, I moved back to Brooklyn and got gentrified out of the borough. <laughs> I thought I had moved back to my, my my borough of birth, and what I had done was just made a temporary move to what was pre-gentrified Bed Stuy. Oh, and uh, and then having been gentrified, I, I like calling it gentrified, gentrified out of Brooklyn, then I found uh, this place here in the South Bronx that actually 
met with my paperwork. I like to say it, it met with my paperwork, and that's a okay. This is where we going. This is we're not we're, saying we're not saying it met your standard. It met your paperwork. <laughs> Exactly. All right, no, enough said, enough said. Uh, if there's any problems with the board, we can edit this out. Um, <laughs> that editor so going to be working overtime. So I saw Rhonda walking around. She was looking for a place to live. Um, <laughs> but all right, so let's go back a little bit. When did you first think that you wanted to perform? I was in kindergarten, and uh, our, our class play was Peter Pan, and I wanted to be Wendy and somehow ended up being Princess Tiger Lily. And uh, I've been trying to be the lead ever since. Was your first instinct that you wanted to act or was that just something that happened because you're in the kindergarten and they say, okay, well, go out there? Well, I, I, I liked the attention. I liked that attention, but mm-hmm. um, actually my, my imagination was captured by sociology and I was actually a sociology major at Brooklyn College where I have my BA degree from. Um, and at the last year, just before graduating, I switched my major with my minor so that my minor became sociology and my major was performing arts. And they had just created the performing arts school there at Brooklyn College. Ah. Yeah. yeah. My real background, which is why I, I feel so comfortable uh, in, in uh, reacting to political and social situations is my background in sociology. In, in spite of my extensive experience as a theater professional as both an actress, production, and, and director. So you made that last minute switch to performing to theater as a major, right? Yes, yes. And when you got out of college did you have a, an idea of what what you wanted to do well when I got out of college I realized that all of my friends have been actually working in actual films and I have been up in an ivory tower in mm. academia so I thought oh it would be nice to actually make some money at this and, <laughs> and and be in some professional productions, yeah. But, but I really didn't know that I was that funny. I just actually fell into comedy because I saw, actually, you had mentioned um, uh, Jane Galvin Lewis. I had seen, um, who is in a documentary yes. that uh, also features me and Marsha Warfield. But it also had and who was the other Alice the other? Arthur was oh, the God. other comedian, and I saw Alice on some cable show at the time, mm-hmm. and I said I can do that, and I felt like well I don't Did have. Did you know all three of them before you? Started n- I knew nothing. I knew okay, nothing okay. about comedy. Yeah, yeah. Now I know that I should have. I should have been the girlfriend of a club manager, and everything would have been different. But I. Well, next time around. Uh, next time around, but um. I saw Alice and I said, I can do that, and and then fell into the comedy world after uh, finally going to a comedy club in Montreal. My, my uh, ex-husband and I had been on a trip to uh, Canada, and I saw all of these white guys doing jokes about Star Trek, and I said, well, that doesn't look too difficult, and, you know, and I don't, I don't even watch Star Trek. And at that Star time, Trek. you only had the original three three seasons of the original series. You're right, you're so right. how complex is that going to get? <laughs> and I decided that this was a way for me to actually perform without waiting for somebody to cast me in a play. When you went to Montreal, 
Uh, that was the first time really, I think that was my first time going to a comedy club. So how long after college was this? Th not that long, maybe about two, three, oh, some years, because I was working, trying to make headway as an actress for mm -hmm. quite some quite some time. And but by and, and when did the marriage happen? Oh, uh, right, right, right after high school. I, this was my high school boyfriend, and we were married for three decades. We had a wonderful relationship. Every now and then, it really worked out. Every now and then, but you know, for the most part, it was a wonderful marriage, and we have a wonderful son. And then at mm. some point. We were not the same people we were when we were in high school when we met. But we had gone to, to Montreal as a vacation, and we went to a comedy club. And then I said, you know, this is something that I want to try. And it worked out. It, it really worked out very well. So you were already married, well, you were at least with him, but you, you were married when you were in college? Absolutely. And, yes. and the son yeah. This was my childhood point? sweetheart. We married and we were together for decades. Son came after college? Yes, yes, yes. I, I, I had decided very early in life that I was, first thing, I didn't even want kids. I'll be straight with you. I didn't want kids. But I decided that if I had a child, it would be when I felt that I was in a good relationship for raising yeah, yeah. a child, a good financial situation for raising a child, because kids are expensive. They are expensive. <laughs> So you were already a mom when you first tried started. I would go to catch a rising star in the yeah. afternoon with the stroller with my son in the stroller hey, to wait. wait in line, pick a oh, number, go man. to the improv with the stroller. And then either my husband would watch the child or my mother would actually watch the child when I had to go out like after nine or 10 o'clock to go. Mm -hmm. uh, if I had actually got a number that was chosen, you know, that I, I got something that said that I could audition. So yes, I had a son. And with, with them, it was, uh, if, you know, I remember going there, I worked a, a job midnight till 8 a.m. on the weekends. And I remember I just went straight over there on, yeah. on Monday morning after I got off work, waited from nine until like around five o'clock when they handed out the numbers. But it, it, it was the same day thing, right? Yeah, uh, I was fortunate that my mother would watch my son while I took a nap. And then my husband mm. watched my son when I went out later to do those audition sets. Yes. So it was Catch the first uh Yes, I passed the catch. I passed the catch. That was the first place I But is that the first place you hit the stage? I guess so. That was my home club. Catch a rising star was mm -hmm. my home club. Bill Maher and Adrian Tolsch passed me at, at Catch a Rising Star. And then I also went over to the improv to have an additional place uh -huh. to play and, and Silver finally, finally <laughs> <laughs> passed me over there. But yeah, so Catch a Rising Star was my main home club. And then there was the improv. When I met you with Passion, I did not know you were Rhonda Handsome. But I knew who Rhonda Handsome was because I took the, I graduated from high school, took two years to then say, okay, I guess I'm going to go to college and then did the seven year plan for, for college. Um, <laughs> but while I was in college, I was like following what's going on in the city in the weekend in the newspapers, you know. And I used to see your name all over the place. I remember those days. In fact, sometimes I post those ads. Dangerfield used to have me advertise that I was appearing there. And it was so funny because when I came back to comedy, they wouldn't even put me on anymore. And I was oh, like, man. really funny. But 
they're closed now, so. <laughs> so fucking. Um, Love Rodney, but, uh, you know, the club is a different matter. The Stand Up New York, I used to appear at Stand Up New York a lot. I was very happy for the PR, the promotional posts that were put in newspapers about my appearances in New York City comedy clubs. Mm-hmm. But what I really liked was the ability to be at home in the clubs, but also in the Catskills. You know, I as, did the Catskills? Oh, yes, I was a staple. That's where I really honed my comedy teeth in the Catskills at the Granite and uh, the Concord, the Villa Roma, all of those places, even the bungalow colonies, all of those places, in addition to the resorts. I loved being in Atlantic City, Reno, all of the major resorts. I just loved it. I loved it. Something else I found out years later, I found out that you had a connection to the first episode of Saturday Night Live. Absolutely. Yes, I did. Could you talk a little bit about that and how that came about? It really was extraordinary. I answered an ad in Backstage, the newspaper, actually. Yes, yes. There was a ad looking for actors who would train to be puppeteers by the Muppets. And I answered it. And at the time, it actually was almost like one of those survival reality shows. Every week I came in, somebody was eliminated from <laughs> from the workshop. We had a huge workshop. And then every week, you know, you were eliminated if they wanted you, if not. Now, were they working towards a specific project when you went? Well, th- very interesting that you asked that. We were working towards this project at Madison Square Garden where we would be in these huge outfits doing something similar to, but not anything like Mumenshans. We would be doing full body work as puppeteers. And then I came into the workshop and they go, we're switching to just from your elbow to your fingertips (laughs) because they had gotten the slot on Saturday Night Live. Okay, so that wasn't even a project that you were aware of when you first signed on. No, when I signed on, I was told we were working towards our being able to perform the full body presentation for the huge stage of Madison Square Garden. But when they got Saturday Night Live, we were dealing with just the small screen and working from the elbow to the fingertips with a voice, developing the voice of of characters and learning to manipulate the the Muppet style puppets. Mm -hmm. And I did the first show of Saturday Night Live as Vosh, the scullery maid in the Muppets section. Uh And then after that, they said, thank you very much. You can leave now. (laughs) Oh, man. (laughs) Fran Brill went on to do maybe one or two other episodes. But the same thing happened with the whole Muppet segment. Every week, they eliminated another character mm-hmm. until at one point it was only Scrod who would interact with whoever was right. the, the guest host. And then they finally eliminated the Muppet aspect of Saturday Night Live. But yes, I did that first show of Saturday Night Live with the Muppets. And I went on to be the secretary of the Puppetry Guild of Greater New York. I think I did either one or two years as the secretary of Pagogni, the Puppetry Guild of Greater New York. And I toured, I actually toured with Pickwick Puppets and performed with Symphony Orchestras. 
I performed with life-size puppets with the Pickwick puppets. Man. Yeah. Where did you do that? All over <laughs> before I started stand up. Yeah. No, wait, wait, was this like I'm an actor? I, I was take just anything. In... Uh, exactly. Does it pay? How, wait, Does it pay? Do you know how remarkable a story that is? <laughs> no. I believe, if I'm recalling correctly, you once told me that you had actually been trained by Frank Oz and, and Jim Henson. Exactly. I... Those were my instructors. Because you were a struggling actor looking for any kind of a gig. You got to be on the first episode of Saturday Night Live after being trained by Jim Henson and Frank Oz. I'm guessing not what you had in mind when you switched to theater art. Hey, you do what you can get. You do what you can do. (laughs) Well, you know, it's better than being Elmo in Times Square. (laughs) I'll say. (laughs) When you first got that gig, were you thinking, maybe this is the way it's going to go? When I got that gig, all I knew was, I can't believe I'm going to be on live television. <laughs> because, you know, there hadn't been a lot of live yeah. television for quite some time. And all of the cast members of Saturday Night Live were just trying to adjust. They were freaking out because no matter how much rehearsal you do, that show is live. So what, what do you remember about that first episode? I remember that, that Garrett Morris was really highly respected in black theater. So I smoked a joint with him. And then uh, <laughs> otherwise, I remember Lorraine Newman going, Lauren, what do we do if we make a mistake? And he goes, you keep going. It, it was wild. It was absolutely wild. You'd watch the sketches or in rehearsal. You try to do your best for the puppeteering and hope that things didn't explode in your face. You know, it, it was wild. It was exciting. It was new. It was brand new. It was a brand new live show, and we were part of it. It was very exciting. Were you disappointed when your character was eliminated? Yes, I was, but it did get me into the union, which got me some background work. I was in Trading Places with Eddie Murphy. I played Bermuda and Pretty Woman. And that was always very interesting for me because in film, I always played a hooker. And on the stage, I was always the maid in one of those wacky comedies. And I didn't mind always being typecast as either a maid or a hooker because I knew I'd always say the same thing. I'm coming. You know, it was really an entry point for me into the union. Did you feel a little bit pissed when Woody Allen finally cast a black woman in one of his films and she was a hooker and it wasn't you? Yes. (laughs) I went to school with that woman, by the way. She's an amazing actress. It's like, you have that conflict. It's like, I'm so happy for her. Uh, well, yeah, you know, for the same thing for Ellen Cleghorn and Denitra Vance. Uh, Denitra Vance was the... She was the, like the, a downtown legend. She was a legend. You're absolutely <laughs> right. She was a downtown legend and the first black woman on Saturday I Night Live. And, and you got the feeling that the people behind the scenes, they looked at us and said, well, you, you're not Garrett. You know, I mean, they really had no clue. Well, I think that happens with a lot of people who go there unless they are creating their own material. They really don't know what to do with them. But be that as it may. Yes, I was jealous of everybody who who was getting on. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I'm not going to lie. It was like, yeah, yeah. Why can't it be me? Did you ever attempt to audition for them after? After I had been on the first show? Yeah, yeah. No, Eric. <laughs> no, because you, know, you weren't a stand-up at the time. You weren't working in comedy, so no. it like 
No. I thought it was a valid question. Yeah. What I did try to audition for was Kids in the Hall. Little did I realize it was for gay men. <laughs> so, okay. <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah. And, but and it was coming out of Canada, too. So <laughs> I was going to say, you know, but... Aside from all of that, I think you would have blended in nicely. Oh, uh, I well, yes, I I do blend well. All right, the Saturday Night Live thing comes and goes. Where does stand up come in? When does that start? Well, you know, I do a turn touring with Pickwick Puppets and being the secretary of the Puppetry Guild, and I'm going. Well, this is nice, but I would like for my face to be seen sometime. <laughs> So then I decided to move on to the stand-up, and it went very well for me. I was so fortunate that I had management at a time when I could really use it. Dave Jonas had been Freddie Prince's manager, and I felt like what better person to help me in comedy is someone who's biggest client just committed suicide. So uh, I went with Dave Jonas and Dave put me in the Catskills and Atlantic City, Reno, all of the major resorts and hotels. And it, you, you were already established in clubs by that point? I was established in the showcase clubs. I, Because of the gigs that Dave got me, I really didn't do a lot of touring and comedy. In fact, I found out that some people had wanted me to be in clubs, but if my management felt like he wasn't going to get a big enough piece uh, of the deal, yeah, yeah, I didn't even not. know that people had asked me to perform in some of the clubs. So, you know, I did Radio City Music Hall, all of the major outdoor amphitheaters. When I first became aware of you, I would see you listed as being like basically at every club every weekend. Oh, I was. I was at all the New York City clubs. It was wonderful. I, you, you must have caught on pretty quickly. You must well, have... I started at Catch a Rising Star, so that helped me a lot. But what I'm saying is from the time you first did your audition open mic thing, Well, I was good, Eric. I was good. I, I, this, I was... <laughs> I, this I know, but I'm, you hear so many tales about comics who are very talented or whatever and have worked for years who will tell you, it's like, ah, it took me two decades to get past it, comic well, strip or whatever. Well, I... I'm asking you because it seems to me that you got hooked up in, in those clubs fairly fast for well, I, as I, compared to peers. I wasn't hooked up. I actually auditioned for all of them. And I, and I will tell anybody who's going to go into it, it's better to be hooked up than to be working, <laughs> to be working mm -hmm. on it. But it caught on. And I was very, very grateful to have a high profile in all of the city clubs. And I really loved being at Comedy U Grand, which was right down near me in Tribeca. In addition to Stand Up New York, Carrie Hoffman always put me on there. I was a staple at Dangerfields, which, as I mentioned, I couldn't even get arrested there when I came back into comedy. You know, all of the all of the showcase clubs. I it was wonderful for me. I missed, you know, connecting with my fellow comics in regular comedy clubs nationwide mm -hmm. because I was in amphitheaters with people like Anita Baker. Oh, and and, can, can you give us, a, just for folks listening at home, tell us some of the people you've opened for in uh, places like uh, Radio City and James all James Brown. James Brown, where I was asked not to walk past his dressing room on my way to the stage. Smokey Robinson. 
Melissa Manchester in the Catskills. Also, the Pointer Sisters, which was one of my best experiences opening for the Pointer Sisters. Where did you open for them? Oh, all over Reno and in Atlantic City. And then Aretha Franklin, the Queen of Soul in this Atlantic is City. I found that out. When she passed, I think we were doing a show that week or whatever, yeah, and and yeah. made about. It's like, are you kidding me? How how do you know somebody for a decade and find that out? Like, yeah. oh yeah, I opened for Rita. I'm sorry, go ahead. <laughs> and but then, I just had to say, like, knowing you is constantly learning new amazing things. Oh, I like that. But the highlight for me was touring for two and a half years with Anita Baker. That was really the highlight for me. You know, in addition to all the wonderful people that I worked with on the bill in the Catskills, you know, there were just a number of, of uh, I'm using air quotes now, folks, showbiz personalities who are staples, you know, that I, I dealt with, you know, on the, on the stages of the Catskill Mountains. Who were you most excited for the opportunity to work with? Oh, I don't know. It was kind of exciting to be with Smokey Robinson until I had to get out of my hotel room for somebody else. Um, was, so wait, wait, Smokey came, knocked on the door and said, I, I'm sorry, we need this room for somebody else? Not Smokey himself. If it had been Smokey, I probably wouldn't have felt so bad about it, but... I mean, did they shift you to another room? It's one thing to be in the venue when your room is in the venue and then or like when you're in Atlantic City, if you have to go to one of the lesser, no offense, one of the lesser hotels on the strip there. And that's what happened. But, you know, it, it doesn't matter. Smokey doesn't know me. And Smokey, if you're listening to this, I really would like to open for you again. And you can redeem yourself, baby. <laughs> You know, There's time! Because that's the way I roll. But I loved doing it all because for me it was like, dun, 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 dun. it was all show business to me. And I loved it all. I loved it all, especially, you know, like when the Pointer Sisters would give me presents, you know, or I'd be going through the airport with Anita Baker and we'd run into Natalie Cole and we, you know, the whole entourage would stop for a moment. It was all good. It was really all good. And I'll tell you, it took me decades to go from that excitement to sitting in my community room talking with you, Eric. Well, we're, we're just decades. happy to be a part of the process. It took me decades. <laughs> I need a job, folks. <laughs> Anything that pays. Man. All right, so you go from getting dropped from the Muppets to living this amazing stand-up life. Yes. When did directing come into it? I was always interested in directing. When I was in college, I was actually an intern with the most prestigious black theater in America, the Negro Ensemble Company. Mm -hmm. And at the time, Douglas Turn Award was the artistic director. Mm -hmm. And uh, I studied there. And I was around black theater royalty, Adolph Caesar, Francis Foster, Roxy Roker, who is the mother of a, of a famous sexy uh, rock and roll star. I always appreciated and wanted to be connected to the theater, you know, because that really was, had been my minor. I was always studying about theater history and working on those things. And I was going to go to graduate school. This was where I, I, I sort of lost my footing. I did not realize how tough it would be 
to try to work my way through graduate school. It was like overwhelming, but that was where I went to start thinking about directing. And what I found was I had had enough of academia, you know, from kindergarten all the way through at Brooklyn College to uh, the, the graduate department, wanting to really be part of professional situations because, oh, in case people don't know, I'm black, y'all. So uh, there was no outreach to nurture black talent in the theater department. When did the notion of going back to grad school occur? Was this- it came when I thought I could get a grant to cover the cost of grad school. Ah. And I took on a full course load. In order to get the grant, you had to take a full course load. And it was a lot more intense than the regular courses. And I could not deal with it. I, it was like... You know, I, I, th- I think I had like a nervous breakdown in the Grand Army Plaza library or something mm. just, you know, just going, Inigo Jones, Inigo Jones. And it, again, I'm in the situation where people I know from theater are actually in productions, are actually making money. And I'm sitting in, in these classrooms, you know, with people who could care less. I have been so fortunate, especially in black theater, but also in mainstream theater. Like I said, I just directed a piece for the Berkeley College of Music. And I've been involved with places like the Lark Theater and the Theater Workshop Company. But to have worked with Boza Rivers, one of my best experiences was directing for his theater company, Esther Armo's uh, wonderful piece, Savior, that's with a question mark. And uh, also just being associated with the Negro Ensemble Company, not just as a student, but to intern on Broadway with them on the River Niger, and to continue with the Frank Silvera Writers Workshop, directing pieces and performing in pieces, but directing pieces for the Frank Silvera Writers Workshop. I have to say that as an artist, I have had extraordinary experiences and have been so fortunate to have been connected with so many wonderful people. And of course, the major man, Woody King Jr., who has been head of the new federal theater to have actually directed pieces for him and garnered awards for my work with. You you won the Odelco, didn't you? Well, the piece that I directed won an Adelco, and then the next year, Adelco gave me the Pioneer Award. I felt like the Harriet Tubman of Black Theater, you know, the Pioneer Award. (laughs) I had a magnificent cast in a show called Real Black Men Don't Sit Cross-Legged on the Floor. It was extraordinary and actually started a trend in male versions of when colored girls had considered suicide, Mm -hmm. when the rainbows was enough. My piece was the first one, really, about men who were uh, a choreo poem kind of experimental theater. Kind of nice to have a woman directing that. It was great. I loved it because I was working with these fantastic actors, including Jerome Preston Bates, whose work I admire. He's done, you know, a lot of August Wilson bit on Broadway. And also I have directed readings of his projects as well. I mean, as an artist, I have to say my my life is extraordinary. I have met and worked with some of the best and, uh, and a few of the worst. Now, was this a step away from stand-up to do all of this, or is this happening concurrently, or, or how does this piece together? 
It just depended on what my wallet looked like. From what you're describing about your first peak in stand-up, was it, you know, you're doing old... I did step away from the stand-up because being in the Catskills and having Dave Jonas, who was a, a major player in the Friars and, as I said, the uh, manager of, of Freddie Prince. I was not connected to people like Reuben Cannon, Bill Bellamy, the entire black Hollywood. And people who I had passed in the clubs were like starring in movies, in black movies. And, and by the way, Tyler Perry, I am available. I fly me out to Atlanta. I will, I will do what I can, you know. I love that you keep mentioning people who are very diehard fans of the show. Um, <laughs> So basically, you stepped away from stand-up for a bit to... To figure out what was going on in my life, okay. Eric, because I thought comedy was going to be my stepping stone to stardom, and it was just a stepping stone. <laughs> so there was, there was no point at which you thought, oh, I, I was wrong about this acting thing, this stand-up is the deal. You, you you had your eye on, on the acting and directing all along? No, I just had my eye on being a superstar. That's all. <laughs> so it was kind of like, a, a, are you going with your gut from place to place? That's that all it? I could do. And, and and it's a mighty gut I got now after all of this COVID. You are still the sex symbol of the no-name family. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I wear that proudly. I wear that proudly. <laughs> But that's all I could do. I felt like I don't understand why I am not working with mm -hmm. these major black productions. I wanted to be working with Cat Williams and Monique and be with the Queens of Comedy, some yeah. more, all of these fantastic people. And my management was not connected to that. My management was connected to something else. And I sort of felt stifled being in the Catskills it was great money. It was great money. It was great audiences. But I had to keep to a certain style. And the more politically aware I became, the harder it was for me not to bring up more provocative topics in my humor. And I mm -hmm. felt like I could not deal with them with Catskill audiences, especially. I mean, these are people who, if Joan Rivers said damn or fuck one time. They felt like they could walk out. In fact, these were people who were proud to announce, oh, I walked out on Alan King or I walked out on Joan Rivers. Their badge of honor was who they disdained for their comedy. I have never been to the Catskills. I know what they represent and what the legacy and history of, of, of those places are. I'm guessing you did not see a lot of people who looked like you when you were in the Catskills. Not a lot. Was that ever an issue for you? I mean, I'll go sling jokes wherever. You, as long as there's not a cross burning, I'll you know I'll do my thing. I but I, I, but I mean, in terms of, did you encounter any issues there? Were you welcomed? Oh, always. Well, but because I had management that was connected. Got it. There. Got it. I wouldn't mind having some management right now. But, uh... Gary, get on it. Get on it. <laughs> Not on your phone, but get on it, Gary. <laughs> so you stepped away for a while and... I stepped away for a while just trying to figure out, you know, what was going on for me. And thankfully, there were still people in the theater circles who appreciated my work. And I continued to 
attend workshops and to direct pieces and teach. I taught at uh, the Brooklyn College of Technology. I taught uh, black theater at a technological school for years there. And that was a way for me to stay connected to the theater company. I actually had Douglas Turner Ward come in and talk to my, my classes and, and try to impart some of my enthusiasm and respect for theater. All right, so you stepped away for a while and you're embraced and in, in immersing yourself in, in theater and theater-related uh, things. Yes, teaching. yes, yes. Um, how do you travel back to stand-up? I'm actually at the Workshop Theater Company and you have to generate a certain amount of money for the theater company. I didn't realize that I had to do that. And I thought, well, I know how I can do this. I can do a stand-up comedy show. And I had Angela Scott, I think, was it Gabe Abelson? I'm trying to remember who, everybody who, who came in to do this show, who was wonderful enough to donate the time to do the show. And I did the show for the theater company. And I realized how much I missed it. I realized how much I missed it. And just started working my way back into it. It was humbling, you know, going to open mics where... You know, people in their 20s had no idea who I was, you know, and asking people for spots and being either rejected or given late spots or whatever and having to deal with writing new material and and having a whole different life than I had before when I was running into Natalie Cole and dealing with the superstars of music and just starting pretty much all over again. After re-entering that medium, you've kind of split your time doing whatever project appealed to you? Yeah. Again, just leading with my gut and doing things where I felt like either I would be respected, appreciated, and paid, you know. <laughs> Any so how com- do you explain becoming a staple at no-name shows? That's... <laughs> <laughs> that that seems like it's working against the plan. Uh, or, or can we blame the old management no, for that? No, I blame Gordon, the PR <laughs> man Gordon. That's He's my magnetic attraction to no name. That's what Aww. it is. <laughs> How weird and touching. Yes, yes. Uh, man, I, no, I got to tell you, I mean, honestly, something that's a big deal to us when we're doing the shows at the little bookshop that could up in, in Washington Heights, it, it's so exciting that you know you you come in and you do this amazing work and everyone loves you and it's just like Rhonda Hanson came to do our show in the bookshop Eric I gotta tell you I loved it because there were no restrictions constrictions on me I always got to see a comic that I had not been familiar with and I got a chance to work out material in a low-risk very comfortable situation and you all had snacks available so you know (laughs) also i i I can say we love that you embrace our aesthetic of using it as a place to play and try out stuff even though it was in the heights it felt very downtown very (laughs) bohemian kind of thing because you always had a a musician but you know i gotta tell you something uh eric You really inspired me because at Otto's and also at the bookstore, you would open the show singing. 
and I loved it. And you inspired me to really continue being a part of Groovin' on a Sunday, which is the <laughs> longest running variety cabaret show in New York City. And I sing with them on a regular basis. We just had our, our show uh, this past Sunday, and we're on hiatus until September. But Groovin' on a Sunday, it's on Facebook, and Woody Regan and Ann McCormick run it. But I had such an extraordinary experience, not only doing backup, singing with the group, but I did a solo, Wild is the Wind which I love the rendition by David Bowie and Nina Simone, and mine is sort mm. of a mashup of that. But I wanted to make a point of telling you how much your singing at our no-name shows inspired me to pursue my desire to sing. I thank you for I thank oh, you I for got that. I did not know this was something you were doing. Oh, yeah. So I need to see this. Yeah, and I, and I love it. Anne McCormick and Woody Reagan have really nurtured my performing with them in a way that I could never completely thank them for how much it has opened me as an artist. I mean, I'm, a, I'm an artist, and this was just another way of uh, expressing myself. I had wanted to do Wild is the Wind for years, and to finally do it in front of an appreciative audience oh, and man. have a great time, it was really wonderful. But I wanted to make sure you knew how much I admired your singing on the shows when I would be with you and how inspirational you were. Thank you. That's very kind of you. Well, you 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 inspire us. What would you like to do that you've not yet done? Oh well, I, I've done everything. I'm doing everything, Eric. You know, I mean, the way our world is now, tomorrow there could be a completely new technology, a new platform, a new way of being in this world that that is not only fantastic but in the midst of a plague you know i can't even think all i can do is lead with my instincts and my gut and hope that some of the people who have worked with me will think of me for projects paying projects and call me do you know i just recently was at the comic strip this past week doing a fundraiser for theater 68 the, whose artistic director is Ronnie Marmo. You may not know his name, but this man has this extraordinary one-man show about Lenny Bruce. He's a wonderful actor. Uh, he is, uh, you know, I, I guess a very uh, in, inspiring and influential artistic director, but the show was so great. I went to see it twice, and Mark Riccadonna asked me if I would be part of their, their fundraising. And I did that at the comic strip. I was on stage with Carol Montgomery, ah. John Fugel sang, doing stand-up for such a wonderful, appreciative crowd and had an extraordinary time. I felt so wonderful having that kind of reception, to having a receptive audience, having people who appreciated what we were doing and it being a good cause. And by the way, I did mention John Fugel saying, hashtag handsome Monday, handsome Monday, tall, dark and handsome Monday. I have to thank this man for giving me a platform on Sirius XM every Monday night. I get a chance to say, what's on my mind and react to his wonderful callers and 
And I'll tell you, you know, it's so funny because people know that I do John's show and we tackle the political topics of the day. I also write these cartoons, Politunatics, you know, uh, these political cartoons with a fabulous illustrator, Scott Williams, who uh, creates uh, models and illustrates and is just a fantastic artist. But then I also am part of Politipod Podcast, which is on SoundCloud. I write and do voice work with Politipod. And people always say to me, you know, Rhonda, you do all of this political stuff. Why don't you run for office? And I go with my checkered background and my, I would have to run as a Republican. I have a personal request of you as something to consider for future things since you've just done all of these things. I would love one day to see a solo show from you where you cover all the shit we've we've been talking about for the last Oh my gosh, you know, that really is something. And Anne McCormick keeps asking me to do a one-woman show where it's mostly around my singing. You know, I was actually fortunate enough to get a city artist grant for my one-woman show, Lie Baby Lie, which was so successful at the Gene Frankel Theater, and I had workshopped it downtown at Dixon Place. And eventually, maybe, you know, that will happen. My first one-woman show was called Last Stop Before Dreadlocks. And then we had Lie Baby Lie. And, you know, we'll see what else happens. You know, it's it's a crapshoot. Mostly crap, but, you know, it's a, it's a crapshoot. And that's how No Name comes into play. <laughs> I'll attach to that previous request a a request that if you're playing with a vehicle like that again, that you'll come and share some of it with us wherever we are doing shows at that particular moment in in history. Absolutely. In a bookstore, in a tiki bar, any (laughs) stage where Eric is there singing his heart out with with the wonderful uh, musicians and uh, stage managers who work with you. I will be there. If you're there, I'm there, Eric. Thank you. eh? That, That right there is reason enough for me to keep going out there. Where should people go if they want to know what the fuck you're doing? Like all the old people out there, all the people of a certain age who are on Facebook, Rhonda Handsome Comedy on Facebook. And I list, you know, the places where I'm performing, what kind of things I'm doing for work. Because I'll go to Rhonda Handsome Comedy. And then on Instagram, I am Rhonda Full. That's with two L's. Do not go with anything on Instagram that just says Rhonda Handsome. There are people who are impersonating me. I feel like how bad off do you have to be that you are impersonating somebody who can't even get a paying job here in New York City? So go to Rhonda Full, Rhonda Full with two L's. And then I love Twitter because Twitter is like crazy. Twitter is like the Wild West at Rhonda Handsome, and that's like a handsome man without the D. Again, make up your own dick joke. So you can always stay in touch with me on social media, and you can remind me to update my websites. I have rondahandsome.com. Eventually, I'll have like all kind of interactive things going on if I could get somebody to do that for me, and directed by passion. And that's Passion, P-A-S-S-I-O-N, directedbypassion.com is my directing website, which, of course, you can also remind me to update with 
clips from my recent directing project at the Berkeley School this, of Music. This, this begs the question, is there anyone trying to impersonate passion <laughs> on, on Twitter? You know, I gotta check. I don't even know someone is impersonating me until someone who actually knows me goes, I know this is not your account. Glory. So I gotta do some checking on all of these social media accounts. Gordon, get on it! <laughs> This sounds like Gordon's area, PR guy Gordon. <laughs> PR guy Gordon, the gem. All right, well, did that cover everything? Uh, well, until can... we do the next podcast, I think. <laughs> on, on a sunny what, what, day. What do you mean next podcast? Until, until we do the next interview. We'll go for part two next time you on know, a sunny day. <laughs> that would be be nice. We got to talk about having you sing with the summer replacements at some point. We'll oh go my gosh, in, yes, in the summer force. replacements. Yes, absolutely. Those wonderful musicians who back you up and keep the energy and the vibe so vibrant at your shows, at the no-name shows. Absolutely. Thanks for being here. Rhonda my Hanson. pleasure. My pleasure. What Directly from my community room in the South Bronx. I love it. I love it. <laughs> Thank you so much. Now with our conversation with Rhonda Hanson, I love her and I just have an amazing amount of respect for her really astounding body of work, uh, as well as her talent and all of that. I hope you enjoy that and I hope you'll follow her and see her perform whenever you can. Our thanks to Rhonda Hanson. That's it for this episode. I want to thank all the people who make this possible. Our good friend Courtney Hill, the king of the hill, who created and performed all the music, our intro theme song, our closing theme song, and all, all good stuff like that. And our producer, Gary Hardcastle. You can't lose with a team like this. So thanks for spending some time with us today. We hope you'll come back for future episodes. And uh, here's a little secret. If you stick around, if you stick around after it seems like we've ended, we're going to have a little bonus content for you. Stick around. It should be fun. Thanks a lot. Until next time, take care of yourselves. I love you all. Hey there, we're back. If you stuck around, thanks for sticking around. If you didn't stick around, well, you're not hearing this anyway, so screw you. But, you know, in a nice way, we're polite people. At any rate, this time around, our bonus content is a song. Now, Rhonda noted that I sing with our house band at shows she's performed on, and she said that she felt inspired to begin doing some music on her own. She'd been singing, uh, I believe, semi-regularly in recent times. Uh, And so it seemed appropriate to present a song that I wrote and performed with our good friend Courtney Hill, King of the Hill, the guy who wrote our opening and closing theme music for the podcast. And uh, it's kind of an unreleased bootleg. We just wanted to get it down. We we haven't decided if we're going to go all the way to recording a full album, put it out there or not. But in the meantime, this is something we did. I think it's pretty nice. Uh, It's called Nothing But Time. And to be clear, Courtney and I perform often as a duo called Nothing But Time. So this is Nothing But Time performing Nothing But Time. And that'll come up in just one second. But first, I want you to know 
that our bonus content is sponsored by Word Up Community Bookshop. Word Up Community Bookshop, located at 2113 Amsterdam Avenue. That's the corner of 165th Street and Amsterdam Avenue in Washington Heights. This is a wonderful place. It's a community-based place, and it is the bookshop with a little something extra. Uh, They have a great selection of new and used books, uh, not only in English, but in Spanish and many other languages as well. They also have merchandise from notebooks to T-shirts to tote bags to games, uh, all sorts of cool stuff there. It is largely volunteer-staffed, and uh, they also have programs for young people. Uh, There are artist events, uh, author events. There are writing workshops, so please check them out. Lots of good stuff there. They also have an online bookshop. Do check them up, out at wordupbooks.com and uh, support independent bookshops. That's always a good thing. So whenever you're in Washington Heights, uptown New York City, be sure to drop into Word Up Community Bookshop. Without you Time goes by Slowly Don't know why But surely Time goes by Maybe stepped out Maybe you just left Maybe you just needed to catch your breath Maybe you phone later on Maybe you send a text Maybe we just don't know what's supposed to happen next But without you Time goes by slowly Don't know why But surely time goes by Maybe it was my fault Maybe you're just me Maybe we don't know what it is we have Maybe you're just here and gone Maybe you're on the road Maybe you had to go out and try to chase the song I hate to see you like this I hate to see you at all If you think I'm in my bliss Just wait till you're in your fall I hate to see you like this I hate to see you at all 
If you think I'm in my bliss, just wait till you're in your fall. I hate to see you like this. I hate to see you at all. If you think I'm in my bliss, just wait till you're in your fall. I hate to see you like this. I hate to see you at all. If you think I'm in my bliss, just wait till you're in your fall. But still, time goes by slowly. Don't ask why, cause surely I'm going by. Let me tell you the time goes by. Oh yeah, I hate to see you like this, my babe. I hate to see it all. Don't you know we got nothing but time? All right, thanks for listening. If you're still listening, that would mean Courtney Hill uh, doing one of our originals. We may share a few of those in future episodes, but for now, I hope you enjoyed that. And if not, well, it's okay. You're done. It's all right. It's safe to go back out into the world. Thanks for listening to our podcast, and thanks for sticking around for the bonus content. More good stuff to come, and uh, just take good care of yourselves, and thank you for coming to play. My name is Eric Vetter.